Bibles that are in the pew in front of you. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angel charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdom of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. This month, we're thinking especially about service, immersed into service, surrounding ourselves with opportunities to serve God. And we are thankful that in our Bible classes, we'll learn of a wonderful way that we can serve God. And remember, what we want to do is be the reason. We want to be the reason that people glorify God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. In Sudan, there's a clinic being built, and we want to be able to help stock that clinic with over-the-counter medications that individuals receive and not only benefit physically from that, but because of the location and the way in which it is given to them, they will also glorify the Father which is in heaven. So be sure and listen for the announcements and the explanations in the Bible class for that. And, and then you can come uh, next Sunday prepared uh, to be a part of that great work. We're also excited to know that the Ladies' Day was a great success yesterday. They had to set up five more tables. Uh, and, and we are so thankful that it was a great success. We're thankful for the ladies of this congregation. They're involved in so many good works. They're so faithful and set such a great example. And we appreciate you. And uh, it's good for each of us to find our place in God's body and serve together. But the challenge is sometimes we don't do so well. Sometimes we find ourselves succumbing to temptation. Sometimes we find ourselves battling temptation and coming out on the wrong side of that battle. And so as we think about service, our life of service is marred, it's weakened, and we can even be taken completely out of service if we don't learn how to stand against temptation and the tempter. And so this morning, we want to spend some time looking to see, as we just had capably read for us, how did Jesus overcome temptation? And then tonight, we want to see how one of the great apostles, who's actually an elder by the time he writes in First Peter, and he tells us how to overcome the tempter himself. I meant to place this as the 
opening slide here and I simply forgot to do so and realized it right before I got up. Most of the slides will be, uh, most of the passages will be on the slides this morning. But if you have your Bible open, we just read Matthew 4. I'd like for you to flip over a couple pages to Matthew 7. In Matthew the 7th chapter, I'd like for us to begin with the words of Jesus. You see, throughout this morning, I want you to see this. We're going to talk about temptation, but we're also going to emphasize what Jesus emphasized, and that is the Word of God. We can overcome temptation if we know how to use the Word of God. And so now the question is, do we really believe the Word of God here? Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew the 7th chapter, in verse 13 and 14. He says, Enter, he's giving us a a view of eternal life or condemnation. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because, now we're back to heaven. Narrow is the gate and difficult. Pause at that word for a moment. Think about that word for a moment. Why is the way to difficult describe the way to heaven described by our Lord Jesus Christ as difficult? Difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So our Lord says the way into condemnation is a real broad way. You don't have to work to stay on it. You just end up on it. And the gate, you don't have to worry about, oh, maybe it's going to funnel down so small that I might not be able to reach it. No, the gate is wide. But there is such a better place prepared for us. The place of eternal life, not death. The place with our Lord, not with Satan. The place to live, not to die. Now, what is that place? He says, the gate's narrow. Few there will be that will find it. The way is difficult. What makes that way difficult? There are several things, but one is temptation. Isn't heaven going to be a wonderful place where we don't have to battle temptation anymore? We don't have to stump our spiritual toe and and try to pick ourselves back up again by the grace of God? Listen, it is difficult. Meaning that if you and I are not working on it, we're not making it. But we can work on it. And by the grace of God, we can make it. And so this morning, I simply want us to look in the Word of God and see how it is that Jesus teaches us that we can make it through even the temptations of life. And so let's go back to our text there. And, and really, let's go back to the paragraph before the text. We were reading in Matthew, the fourth chapter, but because of a phrase that Satan uses a couple of times, I want to remind you that this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And as the beginning of his public ministry in the third chapter, in verse six, in beginning of verse 13, we see that Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now, a few Sunday nights ago, we studied this entirely, but we'll just mention it quickly because of the phrase that Satan quotes twice. You remember he came to John the Baptist at the Jordan and asked him to baptize him. And John says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoe. And, and he insisted for righteousness sake. And so John baptized him. And, and you remember at the time that he baptized him, the heavens were torn open and the spirit of God descended in the form of a dove. 
And then that silence of heaven, the last time we know of heaven's uh, uh, speaking was whenever it was prophesied uh, through angels that Jesus would be born. And then when Jesus was born, there was that celebration of that angelic host that was singing. And now we, we have apparently 30 years of the silence of heaven, but now the silence of heaven is broken and it's the Father. So the Spirit has come down in the form of a dove. The Son is being baptized and the Father says, Behold. In other words, look at this. Behold, this is my beloved Son. In other words, the beginning of this public ministry is what? It's to tell the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior. And so over the next few years in ministry, Jesus is going to be preparing people for salvation through the Son of God. Now, if you're Satan, what do you want to do? You want to undermine Jesus. Keep in mind, keep in mind, this is the beginning of the profession of faith out to the world, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. After this, the Spirit leads Jesus out in the wilderness and there He fasts and He prays as He's tempted for 40 days. Now at the end of this 40 days of temptation, we see that Satan comes and tries, I guess you would say, to give kind of that final set of temptations that would try to bring Satan or Jesus off of his mark of perfection while Jesus seems to be perhaps at his weakest point. Now, we're not going to develop all three of these temptations this morning. I want to show you more about how Satan was working in these three and then just spend a little bit of time at the end of this lesson with the first one. But what we see in the way that Satan was working is that he comes to him with the first temptation and it seems to be primarily based upon the flesh, upon the physical. You see, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Now, most of us, if we haven't eaten in four hours, we think it's time to eat. And most of us couldn't imagine not eating for four days, and he hadn't eaten for 40 days. You can imagine how the temptation for hunger, that hunger is going to create a temptation that would be very great. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. But this literally was a temptation against his flesh. The second one seems to be a temptation against his spirituality. In other words, Satan changes the scenery. And Satan takes him now to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to the top of the temple. And, and there he says, if you're the son of God, just, just jump off there. Because God has promised that he'll let the angels take charge over you and, and not even uh, your foot shall be dashed against a stone. So, so just leap, just jump. Friends, how do you prove your faith to God? Do you have to obey Satan to prove your faith, or is it just the opposite? In other words, think about this. Did Jesus have to do what Satan was offering right there to prove that he trusted God? In other words, Satan is throwing out there, do you trust that God will take care of you? Listen, if you trust that God will take care of you, you prove that by obeying God's will not by succumbing to the temptation of Satan. If you prove your faithfulness, it will be by obeying the will of God, not by conjuring up in your mind what some great acts of faith might look like that are not found within the Word of God. Today, radical is a hot word 
The idea, can you prove you have radical faith? Just make sure that the only way you understand, the only way that you can prove that you're radical in a spiritual way of righteousness, it's not by conjuring up things that are not in the Word of God and seeing if you can carry them out in the name of God. It's going back to the Word of God and carrying out His faithfulness. That's what has always been radical to the world. You see, if we're not careful, we're going to start creeping over into the ways that the monks of old used to do things like living in trees for several days or several months and then declaring that we're doing it in the name of God and we're wanting to have radical faith. Friends, at that same time, I want to urge you to believe that God's never had a problem asking us to do radical things. He didn't have a problem asking Noah to build an ark or Abraham to offer his son or the apostles to travel all around the world. God doesn't have a problem with asking us to do radical things. My challenge to you from studying the Word of God is to look at the example of Jesus Christ. It's pretty radical to jump off a pinnacle of a temple and say, I'm doing it because I love God this much. And you know what Satan, what Jesus said to Satan? I'm not tempting God. In other words, God did not ask me to do this. So I'm not doing it. I'm not tempting God. Just make sure that you realize the greatest radical thinking that you can have is to say, I want to go back to God in everything. And however much, and sometimes even when it's little, that he asked, I want to always submit to it. But the third temptation that we see Satan working on Jesus is his very occupation, his vocation. Why did Jesus come to this earth? He came to this earth to seek and save the lost. And you remember that now Satan has shown him another scenery. Now they've gone into the high place in Jerusalem on a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And now Satan is going to make a deal with him. Keep in mind John 8 and 44, Satan is the father of lies. And fortunately, our Lord and Savior knew that very well and he wants us to learn that. But think about how tempting it would have been if for a moment he would have believed the lies of Satan. I'll give you all this. Now you can detour the cross. Now you don't have to face Calvary. You can still have the kingdoms that you have come to save. You know, it's interesting when we think, what vocation do you have? In other words, there are probably some temptations that come with my vocation that probably you may not experience exactly in the same way. And there would be some temptations in your vocation that you will have that I probably won't experience. But you can rest assured that Satan today is still working on individuals in the same way. He's going to tempt through your physical flesh. He's going to tempt you even in your spirituality to try to get you to prove and do things in the name of God or spirituality that God has never asked. And he's even going to work on you in your area of life. Why are you on this earth and what do you do for a living and how do you sustain your, your, yourself and, and all of those things. Satan is always coming at all kinds of angles. You see, that way to heaven is difficult. And if we've become casual in it, we've left the difficult way because the broad way is very casual. What's the answer? Isn't it wonderful that the answer is the same each and every time? The answer is, it is written. 
Before we get to that, it is written. I want to show you a second thing, though, that is, is worth noting and knowing as you study this. Satan was also trying to pull at the pride that Jesus might could have suffered of just being a human. Now, please realize, I realize Jesus didn't sin, but I'm talking about temptation. He could have been tempted to suffer pride as a human. And so now he's just been baptized 40 days earlier, and we see that the heavens have declared from from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. His mission is to go around the world and save and convince people to follow him as the son of God. And so what does Satan do? Did you notice that each of the first two temptations, each time Satan began with a certain phrase. I'd like for you to notice that again. Look down, if you will, at your text in the fourth chapter and notice how Satan began in verse 3. The fourth chapter in verse 3 Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Glance down at verse 6. Now he's at the pinnacle of the temple. In verse 6 he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. What is he doing? Ah, This may even be more of a man thing than it is a woman thing, but how many of you men like to be challenged on who you are? Can you imagine? Jesus knows that he's the son of God. And what what does Satan do? I wonder what his tone of voice was here. A little bit of doubting. Ah, if you are the son of God, turn those stones into pieces of bread. If you are the son of God, just jump. Do you trust God that much? If you're the Son of God, you'd do that, wouldn't you? I need to recognize that one of the ploys of Satan has always been cast doubt. Cast doubt. From Adam and Eve, with Eve in the garden, Satan tried to get her to doubt that God was telling her the truth. Listen, as human beings, we are going to have doubt, but we need to recognize again The answer for every temptation is the same. And that is, go back to, it is written. If you want to answer physical temptations, go back and find passages of truth that help us learn to see the truth through the lies. If you want to know how to overcome spiritual and vocational temptations, go back to, it is written. And that way we can see through the lies because we know the truth. If, if we're being tempted to suffer pride, go back to it is written. Do you see each time, each time, look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Look at verse 7. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Look at verse 10. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Now when we look, At this, I'd like to remind you of other passages that speak about the written word. Look in Hebrews, the fourth chapter and verse 12. Hebrews 4 and 12. And the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Wait a minute. That sounds like the word of God is a weapon. It is, isn't it? Because why? We have an enemy. 
And the only way we can conquer the enemy, Jesus has showed it to us. Now, do you realize Jesus himself was the word manifested? John 1 and 1, Jesus, is the, he, he was called the word. So why did he quote the word when he simply could have just spoken the word? Because he was the word. First note this, he used the word to defeat Satan. But second, he quoted it instead of just stating it because he wanted to set an example for us, the power of the written word. Each time he referred to it as the written word, it is written. Because you and I, we're not the word manifested. What we have to do is go back to the written word. Jesus is showing us something here. We need a sword because we have an enemy. We need to be able to fight to keep ourselves on that difficult road. You remember, we need to stand against the wiles of Satan. Ephesians the 6th chapter, beginning verse 10 and 11. How are we going to do that? Remember the Christian armor? Do you remember when we work our way down there, Ephesians 6 and verse 17, at the end it says, and the sword of the Spirit. We've already begun this verse, taking on the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We must take upon ourselves the armor, including the weapon, the sword. It's the Word of God. The psalmist in that beautiful writing in 119, where that long chapter is all about the Word of God, in verse 11, said, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How powerful is that and how beautiful is that? But how true is that in your life? Do you know a word that's sharp because you've seen it defeat Satan in your life time and time again? Do you know a word that you're holding in your hand and you not only have it, but you know how to use it as a sword against him? Do you have a word that it is in your heart and you know how you can literally go through the word of God in your heart and use it against Satan at a moment? Because, friends, if we don't know anything about the Word, it's going to be very difficult every time Satan tempts us to say, Satan, can you stop right now that temptation for just a moment? I need to get a concordance out. And I'm I'm sure the Bible says something, but I just haven't been studying. I I just don't know it. I'm not suggesting on one hand that, that we all should be scholars, but we must realize the importance of living our lives in studying the Word of God so that the Word is fresh and alive in our lives, immersed in all, to where the Word of God, Psalm 119, we stand in awe of it. Do you love the Word of God because you recognize how it protects you? You recognize that truly it is just that, the Word of God. I want to know what God says because God can save me and God can protect me. God loves me. But now let's go back and let's close this lesson by looking at that first one. That first one was hunger. How bad can hunger be? If you don't think hunger can be very tempting, I just want to remind you of a sick example of that. In 2 Kings, the 6th chapter, whenever the Syrians surrounded Samaria, and instead of going in and just warring against them, they decided that they would literally starve them out, creating a famine-type situation. 
And how bad did it become? In verse 25, we see of 2 Kings, the sixth chapter, that it became so bad that the donkeys began to be eaten. And later on in this story, we learn that by the time it's over with, there's only five horses alive in the whole place. Now, it was probably only the wealthy that could afford the steaks and the donkey. And you know what the head was selling for? 80 shekels of silver. And how bad did it get? How bad can temptation become when you're hungry? Well, they got to the point, not suggesting this is sin, but if you don't think it can move you to do strange things, they began to eat the manure of pigeons. And so it became valuable. And some could scoop it and find it and put it in a pint size and they would sell it for five shekels of silver. How tempting can hunger be? The woman cries out as the king was walking on the wall. The king doesn't know if he's able to help because the people are asking for a lot of things the king can no longer provide for them. One simply being food. But the woman, she wants him to settle a dispute. There's been a friend of hers that hasn't been fair. This friend owes her something and she's hoping the king can help the payment be made. Let's read real quickly what this is in 28. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we might eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes and he grieved. He recognized how desperate the people were. Oh, I know. There's many here saying, I would never do something like that. I'd never pay high dollar for a donkey's head. I'd never eat manure. I would never eat my child. Friends, all I'm suggesting to you is this, that the flesh can create great, great desires to do wrong when it comes to survival. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Think how tempting it was not to eat someone, but to just turn those stones into bread. You know what Jesus' answer was? It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, it's not going to be bread that keeps me alive. It's my God, my Father that sustains me. And not only did he quote something that sounded beautiful, the, the, uh, the text that it comes out of, gives a tremendous teaching. And we'll close with this. If you will, turn with me to Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter. I'd like for you to read with me verse 1, 2, and 3 and notice how the emphasis each time is upon the Word of God. And then notice how he drives this point home, Jesus does, by quoting verse 3. Now remember, the children of Israel came out of slavery. They came right over to the edge of the Canaan's land. And if they would have believed the Word of God, that's what faith is, is living the Word of God. If they would have believed the Word of God, they would not have listened to the ten wicked reports that those spies gave. But instead, children of Israel defied God. They would not believe His Word. And so they were sent out for 40 years, one year for every day that they were out, in the, uh, out spying around, they spent in the wilderness. 
The older generation dies off and now they're led to the edge of Canaan's land again. Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to lead them over. And so the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last time that he gets to talk to the people. And what does he talk to them about? Over and over and over and over, he talks to them about, will you believe the word of God? Will you live the word of God? And here's just one example. We're in the first verse of the eighth chapter. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. How much does God want us to obey? From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God said, I just want you to be careful to observe everything I ask. Why? God asked everything for our good. It's for our blessing. It's to keep us safe. Moses wanted the people to be safe. He wanted them to be blessed. And notice he says that you may live. That's why he wants them to obey it and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Because keep in mind, their fathers didn't believe and keep the word of God. And so they died out in the wilderness. And now look at verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. There was a reason for it. Look at it. To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Did you ever know that? Did you know that that time out there, it's easy for us to look and say it was punishment, but it's punishment with a purpose. He says, I'm going to put you out in that wilderness, and I'm going to see what your heart is made of. And whenever you finish your wilderness wondering, if you've passed the test, you're going to come back humble saying, we want to obey the word of God. So he describes that in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3. So he humbled you. Just talking about God humbled Israel. How'd he do it? He allowed you to hunger. Now think about Jesus being tempted by Satan after 40 days of not eating. He allowed you to be to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, he says, he put you out in, in the wilderness. And then he didn't say, here's some seed, grow your own wheat. Because then you would grow your own wheat and you'd say, isn't it good that we can take care of ourselves?" He says, he didn't even just give you some bread laying around that you would, or wheat that you would make the bread yourself and say, well, at least I'm glad we found this wheat that we can make bread. Do you see what the emphasis is? Moses says, listen, He put you out there, he let you get hungry, and then he gave you miraculous bread. Imagine the first time they picked up manna. Our fathers have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. This is from God. We're going to live. And you hear what Moses is saying? You're not living because of bread. You're living because of the one who provided the bread. You're not living today because you have food in your pantries. You're living today because there's the almighty God who put food in your pantries. You don't have health today because you've taken such good care of yourself. You have health today because God has given you life and health. You have jobs, not because you are so industrious yourself, but because God has given you the health and the opportunity to work to provide If we were to read later in this same chapter, he talks more about that. What's the point all through this chapter? All through this chapter, Moses is trying to get the people to lift up their eyes and stop looking to the earthly things and say, that's what what provides for me. That's what sustains me. And he says, when you see all of those things, you remember it's God 
who provides for you. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry, aren't you? How about turning those stones into bread? If you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. It's not bread that's going to keep me alive after 40 days of not eating. It's going to be the one who has always sustained. He didn't ask me. I will wait on him. And oftentimes, we fail to overcome temptation because we don't wait on God. And we substitute our will for his will. We want the bread today instead of waiting on the one who's been providing bread for centuries. This morning, what'd you learn? Bread doesn't keep us alive. It's the one who gives bread that sustains us. Obeying every word that proceeds out of God's mouth is how Jesus said to live. The word is given not only for us to learn, but it's given for us to use. This morning, are you alive? Listen, there's none of us that easily make it on the difficult path. There's none of us that make it alone on the difficult path. It's only by God's grace and our faithfulness to His Word that we stay on that path. Everybody in this room has been off that path. And our hope and prayer is that everybody in this room will leave today on that path. It may be difficult, but it's filled with love and with grace and with hope and with life. If we can help you in any way, if you're ready to name Christ as your Savior and be immersed in Him, or if you want to come back to Him, come as we stand and as we sing.